If you were here last week for the carol services, you'll remember that we did a little bit of audience research, uh, all done very scientifically with a show of hands. And I asked people what things about Christmas they thought were Christmas essentials. There was quite strong support for a Christmas tree being essential, and especially among the children, presents. There was not a lot of support for Brussels sprouts, (laughs) even with chestnuts. But there was almost unanimous support for the greatest Christmas movie of all time, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Or at least that's how I interpreted the show of hands. But then again, the stage lights were quite bright. As well as Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog and Fozzy Bear, it also starred Michael Caine. Not a lot of people know that. But I think we did agree that the one thing about Christmas is that there isn't any single thing that is absolutely essential. It's really the combination of all of them that we've kind of got used to. We're familiar with them. We're comfortable with them, like a favourite pair of slippers or a favourite pink shirt. Uh, By the way, the um, reason that I'm not wearing a pink shirt today is because it's Christmas. I made the mistake last Sunday at the carol services of wearing green trousers and a red shirt. Someone told me I looked like a Christmas tree. Uh, She meant Christmassy, but it kind of came out wrong. Anyway, lesson learned from last week. Um, I've stayed well away from the green trousers and red shirt this week. (laughs) But the fact that we know what to expect at Christmas is one of the problems when it comes to the sermon. There are hundreds of stories in the Bible, but at Christmas we only focus on one. There are hundreds of Bible readings that we look at all year, but only a few that we read at Christmas. Even if we're not regular churchgoers, most of us are pretty familiar with the nativity. We've been to so many carol services and school nativity plays. So you can kind of see why teachers try to add something unexpected to the story. Which, you may remember if you've seen the film, is exactly what happened in Love Actually. We've been given our parts in the nativity play. (gasps) And I'm the lobster. The lobster? Yeah. In the nativity play? Yeah, first lobster. There was more than one lobster present at the birth of Jesus. Duh. (laughs) The Love Actually school nativity featured a whale, front right of the picture, next to the lobsters, obviously. A large green octopus on the left, and a wise man with Spider-Man face paint which I thought was definitely worth a close-up. So the poor speaker at the Christmas service, me in this case, has a bit of a problem because people know it all already. They know what to expect. We expect the angels. We expect the shepherds. We expect the wise men and the star. And we expect Jesus, the Son of God, to be born into this world as a human baby. Earlier this year, the celebrity Paris Hilton, who famously is famous for being famous, tweeted this, tell me something I don't know, which, as you might imagine, generated over 13,000 responses. 
In answer to the question, tell me something I don't know, Jacob Wilde responded, most things, Paris. <laughs> Harsh, but fair. Look, at least her parents named her after the Paris Hilton and not the Luton Airport Hilton. <laughs> now, Miss Hilton wasn't thinking of the nativity story, of course, when she tweeted, tell me something I don't know. But she might just as well have been because we're so familiar with all those features of the Christmas story. We're surprised by lobsters being in the story, but we're not in the least surprised by shepherds. We expect the shepherds. We're surprised by the large green octopus, but we're not in the least surprised by the wise men. We expect the wise men, although not wearing Spider-Man face paint, of course. And we're not in the least surprised by Jesus, the Son of God, being born as a human baby. And yet, if we could travel back in time, 2,000 years, and interview the people who were there when it happened, it would all be very different. The irony is that all these things that are totally expected from our point of view would have been totally unexpected from theirs, at least to begin with. It was only later as they reflected on Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. Only then did they begin to realise how all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah had come true in Jesus. Prophecies from many, many hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Some say that over 500 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the story of Jesus. The more they thought about Jesus' life and the more they read the scriptures, the more obvious it was that Jesus was the Messiah. So when Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote their eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, we find all four of them saying things like, this fulfilled what God had said through Isaiah. This fulfilled what the scripture had said. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and so on. There's over 40 examples in just their writings. There's one in the passage we heard earlier. Let's have a quick look at this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you have one of those Bibles with footnotes, or, or you go to biblegateway.com, you'll see that every time it says something like, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, there's a footnote to the Old Testament prophecy that is being fulfilled. In this case, Isaiah 7.14. Just in this chapter... Matthew chapter 1. There are 24 Old Testament verses footnoted from 13 different books. 1 and 2 Samuel, 
Psalms, Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ruth, 1 Chronicles, Joshua, 2 Kings, Esther, Ezra, and Deuteronomy. Just in this one chapter alone. The book of Isaiah, for example, was written six to 800 years before Jesus. But because Isaiah has so much to say about him, the early Christians used to call it the fifth gospel, along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of the early church fathers said that Isaiah describes Jesus so clearly that you would think he's writing a history of what's already happened rather than prophesying about what is to come. One modern-day theologian drew together a gospel narrative made up entirely of passages in Isaiah. We haven't got time to read it now, but it's quite something if you get the chance. He said this, It's really quite extraordinary how complete the story of the life of Jesus, told almost entirely in the words of Isaiah, can be. The fifth gospel version of the story actually contains virtually all the details that are in the other four, as well as some like the ox and the ass in the nativity scene, which are not. So when you're all having Christmas lunch and Uncle Ernie tries to tell you that there were no farmyard animals in the nativity story, refer him to Isaiah. Unfortunately, the theologians have yet to find any reference to a large green octopus, lobsters, or Spider-Man. Except, of course, after a couple of drinks. So let's have a quick look at a, a couple of these things that we expect to find in the story of Jesus that would have been completely unexpected by anyone at the time. So first off, the shepherds. Here's an artist's impression of some jolly, nice-looking shepherds. And God has chosen these shepherds to be the very first witnesses to the birth of his son. Now, you may be having a Paris Hilton moment right now, saying to yourself, tell me something I don't know, but stay with me. Because we need to know a little bit more about shepherds in first century Palestine. Uh, First off, they weren't gentlemen farmers in barbers and green hunter wellies. They were low-paid, casual labourers. Being a shepherd was one of the worst jobs going. It was categorised along with being a dung sweeper, someone who brushed the poopy doops off the street (laughs) after the cattle and the horses had done their business. And the reason that these shepherds were in the fields wasn't because they'd just popped out after dinner to check the sheep were okay before going to bed. It was because the shepherds lived with the sheep in the fields for weeks at a time. They had to do that in order to protect them from thieves and wild animals. So they would sleep in their clothes for weeks on end up in the hills where there were no showers and no toilets. So they smelled pretty bad. And they had a reputation for being dishonest. People said you should never buy wool or lamb from shepherds because you'd have to assume that it was stolen. Shepherds were despised by the religious people because they had to work on the Sabbath, so they never went to synagogue. And shepherds weren't allowed to give evidence in court. These witnesses that God chose to the birth of Jesus because they said no one ever believed a word that a shepherd said. 
So now you can probably see why the shepherds were terrified when they saw the angel. They assumed it was bad news, God's judgment on them. Now you can see why they were astonished and overjoyed that God would choose them. People who were right down there with the lowest of the low in society, who no one ever believed a word that they said. Now you can see why the people in Bethlehem were amazed that the shepherds would be God's chosen witnesses to what had happened. What on earth was God up to? In the birth of this baby, God was rewriting the rules. You see, the religion of the day was very much not good news for people like those shepherds, the ordinary people. But here was this angel saying, you don't need to be afraid. This is good news for you, for all the people, not just the religious people. A saviour is born to you. God's favour is on you. And the shepherds were thinking, well, what kind of good news can this possibly be? Not just that people like us would be included, but that God would actually choose us to be the first to experience it. So these are the things that Mary treasured up and pondered in her heart. That is the context for that verse. Mary could see that through this baby, God was rewriting the rules of his relationship with the world, of who people thought God was and what they thought God was like. So try and keep that in mind, and let's have a quick read of the passage that we heard earlier in the video and see if now maybe it makes a bit more sense. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favour rests. This was the first time in human history that any shepherds had ever heard that God's favour rested on them. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. And then finally, what about those wise men? Those we three kings of Orient are. Well, we know that there weren't necessarily three of them. People tend to assume that because of the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they might have been wise, but they certainly weren't kings. 
The NASB translation gets it right when it calls them magi, from which we get our word magician. They were astrologers from Persia. They weren't even good Jews. Why would God reach out to people who've been spending their time reading horoscopes and tea leaves, who thought their lives were ruled by the movements of the planets? Why would God invite them to be included? I think the reason is because God knew that in their hearts they were God-seekers, even if they were getting it wrong at the moment. And as Jesus later said, if you seek, you will find. I believe that God reaches out to everyone who really wants to find him. Those magi had to commit months of their lives, maybe over a year on that journey from Persia, for the sole purpose of finding out whether Jesus is real. And maybe there's a lesson in that for some of us. So no wonder those first Christmas presents were a bit dodgy. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, gold is always useful, no problem with that. Uh, Frankincense was used to make your house smell nice, or in this case, presumably, your stable. So Mary was probably quite pleased with the frankincense, but she wouldn't have been at all happy about that myrrh because myrrh was used for embalming dead bodies. So why on earth would anyone give that to Jesus? An intentional and yet ultimately prophetic statement for what was to come at the cross. So it seems to me, with all due respect, that God made some very funny decisions about what was going to happen that first Christmas. It seems like God began the story of Jesus by reaching out to all the wrong kinds of people, not the way people would expect God to do things. I mean, to start with, would you really come as a vulnerable baby? In fact, if you were God, why would you come and get involved in this world at all? I mean, gods are supposed to be aloof and distant and unknowable. They're supposed to be up there, not down here. But this God says he wants to be called Emmanuel, God with us. This God says I'm going to be part of your world and your lives and your experiences. I'm going to experience it as you experience it. I'm going to love you just as you are, but I'm also going to love you too much to leave you that way. I'm going to change your world from within and I want to change you from within as well. Your lives and your experiences, if you'll let me in. John, who was one of Jesus' first disciples, later wrote this. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And that word right means both the privilege and the power for it to happen. Nothing that you or I ever do, nothing you or I can ever do, will transform our lives as much as inviting Jesus in and taking up that invitation to become a child of God. If you were God, would you have reached out and involved shepherds? 
If you were God, would you have reached out and involved astrologers? Well, maybe you would if the angel really meant what he said. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. I can almost see that angel pointing to those shepherds when he's saying, you, you, you. Yes, you. And I can see them looking around and saying to each other, he must mean someone else. But no. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. And I can say this Christmas, and you can say this Christmas, today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. You know, the, the literal meaning of the name Jesus is God saves. Unfortunately, that word, saves and saviour, has rather lost its meaning, and it gets parodied a lot nowadays, doesn't it? Christians shouldn't complain about that, of course, because we've rather done that to ourselves. Asking people that question, tell me, brother, are you saved? In that rather creepy and sinister kind of way. Without explaining to them what that means in words that make sense in non-religious language. But really, you know, it's quite simple. It's about being rescued by a divine rescuer. It's kind of like we're in a burning building and we're powerless to get ourselves out. Sometimes we are in a burning building that we set on fire ourselves. We lit the match. Sometimes we're in a burning building that the world we live in, that life itself has set on fire. Sometimes we're the perpetrators of the sin we need saving from and forgiving from. And sometimes we're the victims of sinful people and a sinful world. But Jesus, this God who saves, wants to rescue us from all of these things. The Jesus who came into this world at Christmas came for all of us. He came into the burning building of human life to find us, to rescue us, and to heal us from the smoke that we've inhaled and the burns that we've suffered and those that we've caused and to forgive us and to set us free, to give us a new life. As John said to all who received him, he gave the right to become a child of God, the privilege and the power for it to happen. So I wonder whether that is something that you would like this Christmas.